Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow is the CEO and founder of Clinical Imaging Australia, a company that creates photography and contemporary cinematic video content specialising in the medical industry. Prior to this, Woodrow was a commercial photographer for over 10 years with his work merging into the medical industry, which allowed him to combine his photography skills with his interest in science and technology. Woodrow has been commissioned by leading brands such as Disney, Boeing Aerospace, Vogue and Allegan. In this episode, we discuss Woodrow's journey into clinical photography, the physics of how photography works, and the basic equipment required to optimize your clinical images. We then distilled this down into a simple solution for injectors and surgeons to use in their practices. This evening, we are joined by the 28th President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson. How are you, Woodrow? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought in the spirit of election day, there would be a good joke. No? Oh, it's... Uh, it's too close to the bone right now. <laughs> How's things going down in Melbourne for you? Um, yeah, good. We opened up last week and it's been nice to visit my clients again and leave my five kilometer bubble and go get some fresh air for more than an hour in a, a day. But um, it's uh, no, it's good. It's a um, good time of the year as well as things warm up. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think it was well worth worth it. All the cases are down and everyone's staying safe, so no complaints. Absolutely. You guys, you guys are up in Sydney, correct? Yes. Yes, both in Sydney, where we live about ten kilometres apart, very close. Um, it was a strange sensation the other day going to sit in a cafe after four months. It was I felt like I was in someone else's house. It was really strange. <laughs> Well, we had such a overwhelming response to the webinar that we did with you a few months ago. We thought, let's get you back in for a podcast because I'm sure a lot of our audience didn't get to listen to the webinar. It was only sort of a, a select a select amount of our listeners that logged into the webinar. So we thought we'd get you back for a photography 101 session. Great. Thanks for having me. So I guess just to orientate the listeners who didn't log into the to the webinar series about who you are and what you do, would you be able just to give us, I guess, your, your five-minute little elevator pitch about who you are and what, and what you do in relation to photography? Well, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to introduce myself. I find it agonizing because I classify myself as a creative um, and selling myself and saying what I do is really hard. Um, but uh, in a brief history of time, I've been a photographer since 2007. Um, after moving to Australia from South Africa in 2004. And I had about five or six years of doing commercial photography, so ranging from fashion, portraiture, weddings, of course, because that's a big industry, and then events. And then around 2012, I met this uh, crazy, incredible crew at the – crazy in a good way because they were just ahead of the curve, but uh, this crew at – a company called the Production House Events, who were doing conferences, but in a, a really unique way. Um, and they came from a like a wedding and events background, and they asked me to come shoot a aesthetics conference for 
the Australian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. And I watched, I've always been interested in science and medicine, and I watched, you know, world-renowned lecturers and professors and people being, you know, plastic surgeons for 30, 40 years talk about, you know, rhinoplasties, breast augmentations, abdominoplasties. And I would watch the lecture and take the photograph. And then I watched the, the slideshow and I'm like, well, he sounds like he knows what he's doing, but his visuals don't really match what he's saying. And then I saw an opportunity there to try change that. Um, and fast forward seven, eight years later and a couple of hundred clinics later, um, I'm a lot uh, older and a lot wiser, I'd like to think, but I've got this um, really niche business now that um, services the aesthetic community uh, to help them take better before and after photographs. So started with plastics and then expanded to um, dermatologists and more and more uh, cosmetic physicians or nurse injectors or estheticians, as they call themselves you know, in the US and Canada. And um, So, yeah, that's a brief history of me. And uh, now I sort of uh, mix up my time between running that consultancy business and doing not-for-profit work on the side in the role as a photographer or filmmaker because, uh, you know, when you can, you've got to do projects that are close to your, your values. And um, I'm humbly proud that I've made a difference to a lot of patients and a lot of doctors. And they give me a lot of motivation to keep helping people because I see how important photography is to, um, to doctors and to patients and education and studies and the science of what you guys are doing. It's, it's pretty incredible. And this was before social media came around where, you know, everyone was like advertising on social media, which is now this whole new beast uh, for better or worse. So yeah. Is that under five minutes? <laughs> Woodrow, I, I met you in Singapore um, when Allegan organised sort of a train-the-trainer conference for the Asia-Pacific region. And, of course, you were consulting for Allegan as a photographer. Yes. And you were teaching, you know, two or 300 of us mm. basic skills in photography, which I thought was amazing. It's the first time I'd really sat down and thought about it properly. I'd obviously sat down in my room and thought, shit this is rubbish how do I make it better but I think for the first time you know someone had sort of spelled it out in a formal way and since then it's really been mm. it still is the bane of my life but I think you and I probably chat at least twice a week um through dms on instagram laughing at before and afters and how you know fraudulent yeah. they could be so What's your yeah. role with Allegan? How did that start? And, and like uniquely for injectors, like how do you sort of go about teaching them? Okay, um, great question. I do remember Singapore. That was a big few days having to repeat the same um, lecture about eight times, I think, in two days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so by the end of it, you don't even know your own name. Um, but I think where I've been fortunate is that um, – when I started this, it was like, all right, let's teach people photography. And because that's what was close to my skill set. And now, eight years later, it's much more about photography as a solution to many other problems that a clinic faces from social media, marketing, education, data management, compliance with APRA, et cetera. So, those lectures with Allegan, they initially invited me in 2014 um, because of uh, another doctor, Dr. Stephen Liu, plastic surgeon 
based in Sydney, who sort of picked me out of a crowd um, at one of these conferences and said, hey, I'd like to improve my photography. And back then, he was regarded as one of the people who took it more seriously. And then, um, again, he was ahead of the curve. And now if you look up his ears, and he's got his incredible uh, what's it, aesthetics meeting, and it's a lot of it is visually driven. So specifically for injectors, I would say that there's been this convergence of um, there's more injectors in the market. The public is taking uh, more of an interest in aesthetic self-care, uh, inner confidence care, and social media is now this platform where everyone is finding finding their their injectors. So it's become the shopfront, so to speak, and. You know, I know what a filler is and hyaluronic acid and all these things, but a lot of the public doesn't, and they are judging on visuals. So injectors have to sell their skills on the visuals that they portray in, um, you know, used to be websites, but now it's predominantly Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. So we've been sort of able to help them in a way that's different from plastics or dermatology, even though most clinics now are multidisciplinary, where they'll... You know, they'll do have a plastics component, they'll have a skin health component, and they'll have a um, purely injecting component. So the skills are transferable. Um, I think it was uh, Dr. Mark Magnus, and that sort of coined it, another plastic surgeon from uh, Toowoomba coined it that, you know, if we're measuring in millimeters, like the differences that we can do to someone's face with like volume changes, we need to be photographing in millimeters as well and making sure that we are getting really accurate image, imagery to represent the changes that we are doing to our patients, as well as um, you know, measuring those results against our own expectations, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as, as doctors and physicians, just like be self-aware of, okay, this works, that doesn't. Um, so I think there's a much bigger attention to detail now that there wasn't five years ago when um injectors weren't really the main main clientele like they are now yeah absolutely and elegant were great with that i think they were really ahead of the curve in 2014 and i'm still uh consulting with them i think we've got a lecture in uh, in canada in a couple of weeks and in july we did one to 1200 doctors around the world and you won't be surprised that it's the same issues everywhere everyone is going into that same funnel of problems with I take bad photography and client expectations, data management takes too much time, um, and I don't have any material to market with. Um, yeah. Mm. Um, Jake touched briefly on, you know, the fake or, or edited images. What do you think the impact is of those sorts of practices? I guess not only on the patients but on the clinicians or, you know, surgeons and, and people that are perhaps even looking to get into the industry, what do you think the impact is of, of that of that type of behaviour? I would say on a surface level, a lot of people will say this photography is too hard or um, I'm just going to use stock imagery. So they see it as a, a quick solution to a problem that they don't want to deal with as opposed to really engaging with the problem, finding the solution, and that may not just be my solution. There's other products on the market to be able to provide like really good objective photography. Um, There is a real uh, scary rise in body dysmorphia due to this sort of feedback loop of people um, having confidence issues by seeing beauty, quote 
quote on social media that isn't real. It scares me because when I did commercial fashion photography, there was an expectation of, you know, you're going to retouch the skin, you're going to adjust some curves. And there was a real skill to that in the context of the technology. And, you know, it's, we know it's advertising. We know this is a retouched image. Whereas uh, now with social media, whether it's influencers using um, skin filters or Facetune, or whether it's um, clinicians doing really distorted photography through bad angles or, you know, taking one photograph too close or one further away, they're, they're not, it's not very scientific. So they're, you know, creating this, this feedback loop of body dysmorphia, unrealistic expectations. But then on a business, on a deeper level, it's bad business. There are so many opportunities now with social media for word of mouth, for referrals, for comments, for engagement, and all of that is driven by visuals that you promote on your channels. And it's quite scary how you know people go into this bubble where they don't, they're not objective about what they're seeing. They might see a celebrity injector or a celebrity doctor, and they don't actually call out the results for what they are. They're either bad results or you can't discern the results because the photography is so um, uh, unclear. So it's bad business, and I think ethically it's a bad, bad maneuver. And, you know, the counter-argument to that is that if you take it seriously from the beginning, you've got, you know, not just in my client base, but out there in the, in the wider community, you've got first-year injectors who are producing a higher objective scientific standard of imaging uh, than a lot of medical journals. And I think um, there's a great opportunity for smaller players to grow quickly by having really good photography out of all the um, expenses that you could um, outlay into running your uh, business, whether you're starting or whether you're rebranding or whether you're doing a chain clinic. You know, um, good photography is a massive ROI out of that um that suite of options that you could have for when you start your business. Can I ask with Joe, from your chats with injectors around the world and trainers and whoever, do, do you think that patient expectation has warped as a result of just seeing those before and afters? Or is it just, you know, the culture and the times we live in where people want instant amazing results and it's not so much the advertising that's influenced it? Um, I think uh, the advertising has definitely influenced it, but sometimes those things take um, a longer period of time. You know, before Instagram, you had your Vogue and your um, you know, classy magazines all portraying retouched imagery and retouched beauty that wasn't real. Back to the, you know, the 40s with your pinup, um, your pinup girls, you know, those images were retouched as well. They would take a, a film slide, blow it up, and the painter would come and repaint it, and then they would reshoot it, and that's what would get printed in the magazine. Oh, so, wow. retouching retouch imagery has been around for a very long time, but I think what we have now is just that it's been amplified because there's so much ready availability of imagery and seeing what other people are doing on social media and all these different platforms. So what I hear from injectors and doctors is that the gap between what a patient um, expects and feels and what they are able to deliver is sometimes getting bigger and bigger and bigger 
because they have to reset expectations on that first consult to say, hey, you know, you might think your nose or jawline is this, but really you're viewing yourself through a very distorted selfie camera or these examples of beauty that you've brought to me aren't real for X, Y, and Z reasons. A lot of doctors obviously aren't photographers or retouchers, so they don't, uh, they can't critically see some of these things. And even I and my my other professional photographers, we miss this stuff sometimes just because the technology is getting so so profoundly good. Um, we, you know, someone might just look beautiful. You're like, oh, that person looks, that model looks refreshed and young and stuff. Like, no, it's retouched. You know, her skin's not real. Her nasal labial folds are missing. Her tear troughs are gone. Um, you know, I don't know how she regulates her body temperature without any pores. You know, it's it's um, it's yeah. it's not as bad as some of the, the the things that I send you on Instagram. When I'm I'm not trying to shame these clinics, so I don't publicly um, you know list their names, but I'm trying to call it out because it's it's not good enough. You know, mm. this is aesthetics, but it's medicine. You know, and it's I think if people are using deceptive imagery to promote their businesses, it's not a good starting point. Yeah. You got to think about as well, how often we are being exposed to these images. Now you were talking about magazines and how often someone would go down to their local news agency and pick up a magazine and look through it. Whereas people are on their phones all day long. So the amount of times that they're actually looking at these images on social media is infinitely more than what it was before. So it's, it's frequency as well. Um, but is there ever a time when you think retouching an image is acceptable, whether it be a mole, you know, whether you've got someone that's had a suntan before the photo or after? Is there like, I'm just wondering, in your mind, when is it acceptable to do it? Um, I think there's a line in the sand. If it's clinical, it's unacceptable. If it's um, medical record, it's unacceptable. Um, pixelating a tattoo to de-identify someone, I think that's acceptable because you're not manipulating skin tone or contours or shape of the face or any perception of your result. I think retouching is left to the creative people where then they're doing art or conceptual stuff where retouching is part of their suite of tools. But I think in uh, any health information, which is what a clinical photograph is legally classified as, it's the same as, you know, if you went to the dentist and the dentist say, oh, look, I'm just going to retouch your x-ray quickly just to show my result in a better, <laughs> better light. You know, um, different intensity of wavelength, but same concept. So, um, yeah, any sort of and, – and, you know, sometimes retouching can be a harsh, like, severe thing, like let's change the skin tone. But sometimes it can be just something simple, like making sure that – our color profile in terms of the way our camera is calibrated and capturing color is correct. And I think that's one of the fun things about photography is that it's a science mm. and it's yeah. a reproducibility in it where you know the color temperature of light, you know what uh, the Fitzpatrick scale is and how to represent that accurately in a digital form um, when capturing skin tones. Like that is so much amazing information that now is cheaper than ever for clinicians to be able to capture. Um, And the more information, the more uh, clinical information you have to discuss with a patient and say, 
you know, you might have come in for this, but actually, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening to your anatomy and he has the clinical information to prove it. So, um, yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying no retouching. <laughs> Can I ask, um, Woodrow, we've probably spoken about this a hundred times on the podcast. Sorry for the listeners if we recap old ground, but the selfie culture um, and obviously social media and, and how we represent ourselves online is obviously a bit odd, a bit warped, and I'm part of that because I'm running my own business account, etc. But what's the problem with using phones and selfies? Like this is really where all the the strangeness starts for me, and I didn't really understand this until your your lecture in Singapore. Okay, look, I think um, there's okay, there's a few things to cover there, but like selfie culture is yet to stay. I think it's only going to increase. Um, People capture themselves in the moment to recall the moment, share the moment, all that stuff's fine. Um, but in terms of taking clinical photographs, a selfie camera typically on the front end of your camera, a uh, front end of your phone, sorry, is it's a really distorted uh, capturing uh, device in the sense that it's got a, a wide angle lens and you've combating physical distortion of the way that lens captures. So it might stretch the image or, you know, take your two, imagine your, your cheekbones being stretched uh, left and right, or your, your forehead and your chin being stretched further down. Um, so you're combating that sort of distortion, but then you're also combating um, the distortion from the software. So all these cameras have software to be able to, interpret the image and fix the lighting balance the shadows and you probably would have experienced this when you take a selfie under certain types of light whether it's outdoors or indoors or the bathroom light how much your skin changes um the tone the texture um and you can even see now if you've got a samsung it will automatically soften your um soften your skin texture or give you a more because it's a korean phone funny enough it'll give you bigger eyes and a v jawline which is a thing you can toggle in the cam yes so every samsung wow. phone's got that built in wow um because you know believe it or not you know those those sort of uh visuals are more pleasing to the korean population you know that's what they what they consider beautiful which is not for me to judge but it's just the reality so the flip side is the um the cameras on the front end of the uh, sorry, the back end of the phone are much higher quality, but for all the marketing that these big companies hit us with, that imagery is still many, 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 many years behind even a basic professional camera or an entry-level camera. Um, so it's a matter of physics that you, these phones cannot capture the amount of detail that you need for clinical information 90% of the time. And it's it's a real eye-opener when I show people a mobile image, a mobile phone image versus a professional camera. And like these clinicians that get really excited because they're like, oh, look at all that vascular detail, look at the contour or volume change that they can see that they could never capture with their phones. So selfie culture is here to stay. I just think that um, using a phone to capture clinical photographs is shooting yourself in the foot. You're not able to capture all that detail or be able to reproduce that image between sessions. 
mm. which is, you know, the idea of a clinical photograph. You don't want any of those variables to change. Mm. Um, what, how do you actually define clinical photography and, and how is the approach different to, say, if you were, like, on a fashion shoot, for example, or doing portrait photography? What is the actual difference? I think there's quite there's quite a few. I think on um, on commercial photography or editorial or fashion or anything, you know, you're playing with reality. It's meant to be make believe, and you're meant to create a feeling and emotion. Um, that you're selling a product. You have creative license to create something unreal, and that sort of goes with the territory. You know, where you know. Fashion in particular, when one of the fun parts of when I used to do it is that experimental thing of clothing and color and location, and um, that's art, and you know you have creative license there. Clinical photographs are just meant to reproduce reality, to be objective, to be empirical, um, and the great thing about a camera as a tool is that it can do both, and understanding. And maybe one of the mistakes I made at the beginning when I started this, I was trying to teach people to be photographers. And that was kind of a fool's errand because a lot of, whilst a lot of doctors are interested in photography, a lot of clinicians don't have time. They just want something that does its job to be able to give them information to make judgments on for treatments. So, yeah, that would be the main difference. One is definitely creative and one is meant to just be evidence. So I define a clinical photograph as health information that provides evidence of uh, of uh, anatomy and uh, subsequent treatments of that anatomy. Woodrow, without getting too geeky, and um, we've obviously got no visuals for this, can you explain mm-hmm. things like megapixels? You know, often when you get a new phone, they'll sing and dance about how many megapixels the camera has and um, yeah. you know, resolution and focal point, just some of the, the real basics of photography and the physics behind how it all works. Okay. I'll maybe give you the important ones, which would be megapixels, sensor size, and let's go with uh, white balance. Okay. Which are the three things that really impact uh, um, and why a camera is a good investment versus um, using a phone or an iPad. So Let's go for megapixels first. So you probably would have heard, what what phone do you have, Jake? I've got the uh, iPhone 10, but I'm trying to upgrade to a 12, but there's no in stock. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've got to get in early. I've got the 12, and I can tell you it's um, exactly the same as the one before. <laughs> yeah, that's my um, fear, but anyway. Yeah. Um, okay, so sensor size and white balance. Okay, so firstly, megapixels is the amount of uh, resolution that the sensor, which is capturing the light, has. So you would have heard terms like 10 megapixels, 24 megapixels, 100 megapixels. The more megapixels you have, in theory, the more uh, information and detail you can capture in an image. So if something is 10 megapixels versus 100, one that's a hundred is going to capture a lot more information. Yes. The sensor, and this is the big difference between um, a mobile phone and a camera. You could have a 24 megapixel phone and a, and a, um, a 12 megapixel camera, but the detail on that camera is going to be far more because it's got a 
a bigger sensor. Okay. So the sensor, do you remember, I've got a film camera here. This camera's about 35 years old. And you would remember film from when you were a young kid. Um, 35 millimeter film is the size of the sensor in the camera. So digital cameras have the same size sensor as film cameras, which was 36 by 24 millimeters, that uh, little three by two um, uh, ratio capturing thing. I can show you, yeah, if you want. I guess we won't have any visuals, but the idea is that that sensor captures light. So mm -hmm. every time you take a photograph, it's opening up and it's capturing that information, yeah. which is really geeky because it's, you know, literally light that's bouncing off your skin comes into the sensor and the camera records the data. Yeah, okay. A bigger sensor means more quality. So the biggest difference between a phone and a camera is that the sensor on a camera is sometimes 10 times larger. Yeah, okay. And that's a physical limitation of a mobile phone and an iPad is that the sensor is so small because they have to fit in your pocket and all the other things that a phone has to do. So you can have all this resolution, but it really means nothing because the size of your sensor that's capturing everything is really, really small. And that's been the biggest marketing coup that Apple and um, Samsung have done is where they make everyone think, oh, great, I need more megapixels, so I'm going to go buy more megapixels. But the sensor is the same size. So they make up for it with software. And, you know, if you've seen The Social Dilemma uh, on Netflix, you'll know that there's a supercomputer behind every mobile phone now. So, you know, those uh, photographs that are taken on a really small sensor, so when you take a photograph of someone's face with a mobile phone, you've got, one, you've got a very distorted view because it's such a small sensor and such a small lens. So it's warping the shape of the face or the body. Then you've got software algorithms that are trying to make up for all the limitations of the size of that sensor. So what yeah. you get in the end is a real interpretation of reality as opposed to reality. So the last thing maybe I can touch on is white balance, which is essentially um, the color of white in different environments. And we can measure white as our interpretation of uh, the scale called a Kelvin scale, where the sun... In know you've got different types of suns out there in the universe you've got big ones and small ones blue ones red ones if you've heard this before uh -huh. yeah this is the cool part um our brains have evolved to understand the color of white based on the color that our sun emits so it emits uh, the visible wavelength and at 5500 degrees kelvin that's the white point so you know when you sit under a uh, a lamp in your house that's a bit yellow that's around 3500 degrees kelvin when you're under a fluorescent light that's more like 7000 degrees kelvin so white can shift depending on your environment and the color that's been emitted from the bulb so that's important uh, because the interpretation of our skin tones shifts depending on what sort of light is illuminating the face of the body. And yeah. to bring it all home, a camera is a computer that can be programmed. So you tell the camera white is 5,500 degrees Kelvin, 
you have a light source that is 5,500 degrees Kelvin. And practically, that means that your, the color of your skin tone is always accurate. That means that the color doesn't shift on time of day. When people take photographs in the morning and in the evening, the color is completely different. So you know, yeah. the the sun the sun at noon versus the sun at seven p.m. when there's more dust in the atmosphere that has to come through and it shifts the color from fifty five hundred to thirty five hundred. You've heard of the golden, you know, the uh, golden hour and the golden light that you get yeah. when the sun's going down. That's the same color as a tungsten bulb in your house. It's, um, you know, a, a, you know, a tungsten lamp in a bathroom or something like that, where it's mm-hmm. 35 and degrees Kelvin. So there's a scale there. And I guess the most important thing is that all those variables can be contained so that you're just taking a photograph, not worrying about all the theory of photography, which is what I find interesting. There's a lot of theory in photography. I guess the analogy is like you have a laser machine, you might not understand quantum physics, but you know that laser does its job and you can program it to do certain depths and frequencies to get certain results. It's the same with the camera. Mm. So just to summarize, and I know that you know, we've pretty much said it already, but why shouldn't people be using a phone? And it's pretty obvious that they should be using a proper camera, but just summarize, Woodrow. Um, in summary, the phone is unable to capture all the detail of the anatomy. It's yeah. unable to reproduce that between sessions. And it gives a distorted view of a patient's anatomy. Yeah. So good photography is a really good safety net because it's objective. And when a patient either isn't happy, you can prove to them that this is you know the actual result and you're taking the image process seriously for their benefit. But then the flip side is that if you've got a happy patient and they're willing to promote you, you've got very good evidence of their treatment outcomes. And you know, in you know, easy marketing strategies, making sure that patients come for that two-week review or two-year review, you give them their own photographs. Same way when you go to a dentist, so they can show other people, they can promote it on their own channels. And we see that with social media now with influencers and stuff. It's a, it's a very um, lucrative feedback loop. So you want to make sure that you're given the best best version of your work. Okay. So I think every uh, by this point, everyone's got the idea now that iPhones and mobile devices are probably not where they want to go. And it probably seems like that's what 90% of people are using. So they're probably going, what do I use? So I guess what would be like your minimum standard recommendations of equipment that people should be getting hold of if they want to take their clinical photography seriously and what sort of budgets would people should people be looking at to, to sort of get the, the bare minimum of what you'd recommend? Okay, so the, uh, the disclaimer is that I have my own proprietary software, so I've got to come across, yeah, to show that anyone can buy this equipment. You don't necessarily have to use my workflow and my software, and that's the great thing. If you go and buy this equipment, you can do it yourself and upgrade the, st- the standards tomorrow. So I'm not selling to you. Um, there are so many camera manufacturers and so many models. I would suggest um, a few different models uh, that are really a good price point ratio. So the uh, Nikon 7000 series, um, and that. Uh, model is the Nikon D7500. 
if you buy that with a 50 millimeter lens, which because of the sensor on that camera will be equivalent to 75 millimeters, you um, you can get a good uh, a good system for fifteen hundred dollars. Sony has uh, the A sixty five hundred, and again they'll sell a fifty millimeter lens, and that'll be around fifteen hundred sixteen hundred dollars. If um, people sitting in their car wondering, oh my god, I can't remember any of this, we'll put all of this as as a post, so people don't have to remember or write any of this down. We'll just do it as a post on our Instagram. Good idea. Um, and in summary, the uh, Canon have a model called the Canon 90D. Again, you can buy a 50 millimeter lens and it'll be under 2000. All of these cameras, if you were to do the settings that I recommended before, require a light source. And you, in each one of these cameras, you can buy called an external flash, which gives you a consistent light source to be able to illuminate the patient regardless of the time of day. All up, you're looking at around $2,000 in equipment. And I think it's the best $2,000 you can spend, considering all the other expenses that a clinician has. Now, Woodrow, one thing I really want to get into, and I think this is probably what the injectors are really listening to this podcast particularly for. So imagine you're in your injecting room, and mm. most injectors, yes, they're going to grab their phone. But let's just assume that they've got an amazing new camera that you've just gone through. What are the other variables that we need to mm. think about and, and what can we control? Because honestly, uh, since thinking about this over the past few years, it's driven me mad that people will say stuff like, oh, I can't get the light consistent. And yet they don't do anything about it. They'll just have the windows mm. open and the lights on and different angles. And, mm. and then they say that it's not consistent, but they don't do anything about it. So what, yes. what are the key variables that we can control? Very good question, and I think um, the before when I set, gave you those camera settings, which again I think we can list in a post. The great thing about those camera settings is that they are they are expecting light from an, a particular light source. So if you take a photograph at those settings, the one sixty f eleven hundred ISO, and you're just relying on the ambient light in the room, so the overhead lights or the window light, that won't be powerful enough to illuminate the patient you'll have a black photograph mm -hmm. so by getting the external flash which would be included in that budget that i mentioned before um, you are emitting a pulse of light every time you take a photograph so you are controlling the light every single time yeah there's a there's a scale of products you can buy you can mount them to ceilings and it can be really sophisticated but on a basic level an entry-level um, external flash attached to your camera means that every time you take a photograph, you are emitting the light. The second variable that um, injectors would be really concerned about is the angle of the light. And what's great again about an external flash is that it's got angles written into the flash. So you can change the angle to be a 90 degree angle where the light bounces off the ceiling or a 45 degree angle where the light bounces off the ceiling and the wall behind you. That light then illuminates the wall and the ceiling and then bounces onto the patient. So it's diffuse. So it's not a harsh direct light like you would see with a ring light. And yeah. one of the reasons I tell people not to get a ring light is that the light is um, 
directional to where it's uh, direct perpendicular to the, the patient's anatomy. So they've got this light that fills all the wrinkles and flattens the face. So you can't actually see a lot of the depth and volume changes. In fashion photography, we use ring lights when the model's got either bad skin or we want to blow out all the, uh, the, uh, the imperfections to make someone look better than they actually are. So that external flash that you can attach to the top of the camera uh, gives you control of the angle of the light and you don't have to worry about the light variation from time of day. And presumably, you know, it seems so simple, but people maybe don't think about it, is the distance where you're shooting from, the position of the mm -hmm. patient, so either standing or sitting, um, the yes. background. All, all of those things are yep. easily controllable and would cost absolutely nothing to make better every time. Yes, so picking a standardized background is really important. You know, you could spend a couple hundred dollars and get a vinyl backdrop, um, pull-up banner even. And having a standardized background is really important because it's, it's how a lot of patients will judge the contour and curve changes in the face, especially like jawline, which is more, you know, more prevalent as a treatment now. Um, if you've got... Um, a standard either white, um, blue, or black backdrop. It's much easier to discern those changes. Mm. Distance actually gets covered by the focal length as well. So when you have a 75 millimeter focal length, you can pick a mark on the floor where the grid lines on the back of the camera line up to certain anatomical features in the face. And typically what we teach everyone is that you can line up the center grid line on the back of a camera with a patient standing in profile and line it up between the tragus and the tip of the nose. It's a great way of standardizing the head position, especially if you are worried yeah. or tre treating submental fat. And you try to uh, neutralize the tilt that everyone has as a bias of the way they hold their head. And if you hold that grid line, you know that you're the correct distance away the correct height in relation to the patient because patient and clinician is going to be different heights. So sometimes people that uh, we advise people to get to hairdresser stools to be able to adjust the height variation between someone who's six, three and five, three uh -huh. so that you always bring it back to that grid line from tragus to tip of the nose. Um, that's a great way of neutralizing the, the variation between people's heights and head, head shapes and um, postures. Mm. Um, so we covered background. We covered background focal length. What was the other question, Jake? Um, well, I, well, I didn't actually ask you, but I think this is probably the most important one. Is uh, the patient parameters. So what they're doing with their face and are they half mm. smiling? Are they wearing makeup? Have they got their earrings on? Um, yeah. Do they wear a headband or not a headband? I think, if you can like just make those things as good as you can, even if you did it with your phone, mm. I know that's heresy to say that to you, but even if you got all those things right and used a phone, it'd be better. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Look, I think it's, it's a, it's a medley of a lot of variations that you're trying to um, control. So um, I've got some, you know, clinics where, they'll have all this technology, but then they won't follow the protocol and there'll be jewelry, makeup, hair in the face. And it's almost yeah. just as bad as having using a mobile phone. Mm. 
Yeah. So I would say the standard the standard things to watch out for is that you want to create as much of a neutral space around the anatomy. So no jewelry, hair off the face with a loose headband so that you can see from you know the top of the forehead down to the clavicle mm-hmm. with no hair on the neckline, no hair on the jawline, no hair, you know, coming out of the uh, the, the opposing side of the face. Makeup and moisturizer and sunscreen need to be removed because they are covering a lot of information in the skin. Either they're covering contour changes or discoloration. Um, you know, it's, it's very hard to judge if a patient has a good result uh, for, say, a melasma treatment if they've got makeup on, um, you know, halfway through the treatment plan and you've taken a photograph and suddenly there's makeup and then that's what you're judging the result on. And with, uh, <laughs> it sounds stupid, but take glasses off. Some people just leave glasses on or they uh, put glasses on top of their head. Um, and I would say with the expressions, like I've met a lot of injectors who have their own techniques and things they want to to choose. Um, I'd say the standard expressions are, um, you know, frowning, um, hard smile and natural smile. Um, saying E as, as loud as you can uh, to show the platysma bands, which are uh, increasingly getting treated. Um, uh, I've got to remember now, sorry, it's late. <laughs> raising the eyebrows, of course, um, to show the frontalis. Raising the eyebrows, yes. Mm. And um, so, you might want to do the baby cry to show the, the chin dimpling of the mentalis. Wouldn't it be easy just to take a video? I mean, we're looking at people's faces. You, you know, you want to see them animated. I mean, you take a photo, you're looking at, you know, a, a split second in time from a specific angle, but that sometimes it doesn't give you the true reality of what those people actually look like in real life circumstances when you're standing there talking to them, they're moving their head, they're smiling, they're doing all of these expressions. Wouldn't videos be, be better? Um, I think videos are a good addition, but as a, as a baseline, there's a couple of compromises. One Video resolution is usually uh, an eighth or a quarter of what a photograph resolution mm-hmm. is. Um, and from a data management point of view, it's very hard to extract a still image from a video, isolate that as an individual file, name mm-hmm. it, store it. I mean, it gets messy very quickly. Mm-hmm. However, there are a lot of clinics now, in addition, especially for studies that have, uh, for, or, um, for training, they are doing video, but it, it's a bit more of a skill set. I would advise that if people have the time, definitely do the video. Prompt your patient through, you know, your five or six expressions at profile, three quarters, face in the camera, three quarters again, and then profile. Um, if you've got the time, video is a great addition, but it just takes a little bit more attention to detail. Also with the expression with the photography point of view is that muscles fatigue very quickly. So it's very hard for someone to hold a frown for five seconds. So I would say be uh, ready to capture that image. If you are prompting them, okay, frown, be ready to take it. Don't say frown, wait three seconds and then take the photograph because mm-hmm. it's sort of like a bell curve where, you know, they'll, um, they'll frown and then it'll just loosen back a little bit when the muscle starts to fatigue can be a bit of a false positive tell you one thing i've noticed trying to use the camera and this is where i think the phone wins <laughs> is um you know obviously you take a shot and if someone blinks or half blinks often you don't realize that till 
you know, they've gone home. And obviously that's my fault for not checking the images at the time. But the mm. awesome thing, I don't know if you can do this on a, on a real camera, is, you know, say with an iPhone, is it takes the live photos where it will take a burst of photos and you can choose the best frame where the eyes aren't half closed. Is there anything like that on a real <laughs> camera? Um, not just yet, actually, because, um, again, the, <laughs> those live photos, they're very low resolution. Mm, yeah. Um, compared to a uh, camera. So the technology will catch up. Yeah. Um, but to your point, um, one of the advantages of using a camera is that you can shoot it connected to a screen or a computer, which means you're not judging on the back of a three or four inch screen. You can judge on a 60 inch monitor to your right or to your left, mm. which is what some of our setups have been. And it gives you an enormous amount of detail. And then when the patient comes for their review photographs, you bring up on the same screen their baseline image. Then when you yeah. capture their, say, two-week review frowning profile, you can compare them live. And then the patient sees, um, you know, sees themselves in a way they can never in the mirror. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, I've got a question for you, Jake. Um, how do you deal with patients that don't want to have their photos taken? or they're being difficult about it? I mean, do you refuse to treat them? Like, what, what's your approach with that? Because I'm sure lots of people listening to this, clinicians, are run into this problem. Well, 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, okay, no problem. And uh, I got my ass burnt too many times. Um, so now, um, you know, it's not just a case of yes or no. I'll explain why I'm doing it, obviously. And it's now a formal sort of consent process with, with me. I've got sort of a consent form photography. And, you know, you explain the purpose, of course, it's a medical legal record. Um, this is really for you, not for me, because, you know, you want to track the changes to your own face. And if, you know, let's just say you go home and two weeks later you see no difference, well, wouldn't it be great to actually have a before photo to compare it to and, and see, you know, if you're right or you're wrong? So from that perspective, I think if you explain to them, because I think as soon as you get a camera out, people go, oh, my God, he's going to put me on Instagram, and they immediately <laughs> recoil. Um, so you have to really explain that, that, you know, that that's one function of <clears throat> the photo, but it's not, the, it's not everything. And <clears throat> sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. What you can also do is you can grade your consent. So you can say, look, you can consent to never using this for any sort of advertising, but we're still going to keep this in your medical record. Or if you're happy, you can tick the box and say yes to Instagram as well. And then it gives them a bit of a graded consent. Right. But would you, would you refuse some treatment if they didn't want to have photos done? Well, there's a massive red flag. If you're mm. not happy to have your photo because either you're uncomfortable or you don't trust me that I can you know, not use that photo if you don't want to, then we don't really have a, a relationship as an injector and a patient. Right. So, so, yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't proceed. So, so no photo, no Botox. I think that the consent form is really essential and it's there to inform them of their rights and the relationship that you are entering with them. And it, you know, fundamentally allows them to know that you are taking their personal data and privacy very seriously. And I think that's a really good um, pillar to build trust and a long relationship with that person. And like you said, it also helps weed out any red flags. On a, um, you know, on a base level, it's a medical record. So they need to understand that as well. And there's 
legal obligations as to how that medical record is stored. Unfortunately, APRA doesn't um, enforce those um, obligations as much as they should, but I think they've probably got a few other problems in front of the queue. But it's also a great opportunity when someone comes back two weeks or a month later and their appearance has changed, their psychology has changed, or they're really over the moon and happy. That's a great window to say, okay, please consent, you know, to use this for internal marketing. So people who come into the rooms when you are showing your portfolio or external marketing, have those um, separations between medical record internal marketing and external marketing because yeah, yeah and I, I really respect your no photo no treatment thing because you have to work on the case of what goes wrong you know if you know if you land up in court because someone's gone blind you want to show that you took all the necessary precautions medically and protocol wise to say that you know you know what you're doing and this was um, out of your control. And if you say, oh, well, I didn't take photos, and then it becomes a really interesting argument as to what the patient looked like beforehand or what the quality of the skin was or you know how that marries with your notes. And I know clinics are busy, but this is really something important that I need to take, take uh, in charge. Yeah. And what about the patient journey in terms of when you actually take the photos? Like, I'm assuming you obviously take it before treatment, then what's your standard protocol? Is it straight after you get them to come back in two weeks, a month? How do you sort of stagger this out? Well, let me add to that question because, uh, you know, I'm still not sure what the answer to this is. Um, I think it was actually in Singapore as well. There was a talk by um, Dr. Yavuza from Turkey and I loved his patient flow. So the patient arrives at the clinic and, you know, a, a therapist or um you know, a non-clinical person will obviously greet them, etc. And then straight away, they're taken to a photography room where, of course, those staff are trained to do everything properly. And the photos are mm-hmm. done before the doctors even met or the injectors even met the patient. And then, of course, those photos are ready to use in the consultation. Whereas, you know, sometimes when you're trying to do that in the middle of the consultation, it gets a bit clunky and time consuming. And by the time you've done everything, it's sort of, you know, an hour later and you haven't even done a treatment. So do you think, can you think of a better way or a more efficient way of doing this? So the way we um, install in clinics, and it's sort of evolved over time, but I'd say for the last three years, is that that is the workflow where the the injector or the doctor or in theory the most expensive person under the under the roof isn't the one taking the photograph it's administration staff or client liaison or receptionist in those smaller clinics where it's just two people working and the idea there is that camera that they take the photograph is connected to a computer which sends that photograph to the cloud which means that when that patient is photographed in the photography room they'll go through they'll get some tea they'll wait for the doctor they'll meet the doctor and they'll go into a consultation area or a treatment room and all the photographs are there on an ipad or on a big screen and then they have the conversation whether that's the initial consult to discuss the options you know and you can do this with you know data and depends how sophisticated you want to be at but it can be like okay i can see you're in here for botox because you're concerned about your Crow's feet. So let's have a look at your photograph of your face at rest and your face uh, doing a frown. What I see as a clinician is actually X, Y, Z. This is the treatment plan over six months, but you know we can do the 
what you're concerned about today, if that's the best treatment. Then when the patient comes back, those photographs are added to the same pool and then you can review and make sure everyone's experiences are in, in the same direction. And, you know, without getting too detailed about the cloud and computing and stuff, it's it's a much more efficient workflow than what you've described and what we install because um, it solves a lot of problems with data management and patient experience because uh, everything is on hand, it's secure, and it's reproducible. How quickly um, does your system work? So once the photos are taken, uh, do you have to then tether it to a computer and then wait for them to upload? Like, How quick is the process? Um, it's depending on the internet. Um, it's usually instant. So right. as you take a photograph, the photograph is immediately there, so milliseconds. Um, but then depending on, you know, and there's certain levers I have behind the scenes depending on your internet speed, but within two or three minutes, you could have the high-resolution photographs on the cloud available to 20 iPads under the, under the building. Or if um, you are off-site, that's a great way for those clinicians to travel between multiple sites is that uh, those photographs are always available in the cloud. So, again, another advantage of shooting with a camera is that it's going straight to a computer, straight to a big screen, straight to an iPad, um, yeah. And what, what software are you using for that? I, I think you use Adobe Lightroom, is that right? So, yeah, the base software we use is Adobe Lightroom, which is part of the same company that make Photoshop and a suite of other programs. And then about four years ago, we had some proprietary software built on top of that, which is more geared towards clinicians and simplifying the workflow because Lightroom is a professional tool and it's got many, many options that aren't applicable in a clinical environment. But the software we have sort of separates it into creating patient folders, adding keywords of, you know, treatment uh, tags. So, you know, this is a Botox or Cosmolan or cool sculpting or whatever it might be. And um, sort of controls what a clinician can and can't do because um, as I found, if you give people, you know, uh, clinicians aren't IT experts and a lot of them and doctors in, in this, uh, they, they aren't that computer savvy. So you sort of have to like control what they can and can't do to make life easier for everyone. Hmm. Um, quick question in relation to security of these photos. As you mentioned a couple of times in the discussion, they are medical records. How do you keep them safeguarded? And, and sort of, I guess, away from prying eyes or if there's other people in the clinic, how do you sort of lock those down? Um, that's a good, very good question. And I think there is, there's sort of two main levels of security. There is, you know, the high-level stuff, making sure that you're using a cloud server that's encrypted. So, you know, things stored on the Creative Cloud are on a Microsoft server in Sydney, uh, Microsoft Azure specifically. Um, which has, you know, all that high-level encryption. The second level of security is making sure that your staff are accountable. And increasingly where data breaches happen, it's either staff that's gone rogue and they don't understand or they choose to ignore their legal obligations with patient privacy. And this happens a lot in 
clinics and have celebrities that come to those clinics because, um, you know, their treatment plans are, you know, gossip and all that sort of stuff. But also staff not having been trained to, like, not open attachments from Nigerian princes that give um, hackers access to their servers to be able to lock lock their um, oh. data away behind a Bitcoin portal. Like, right. I had that happen about four or five times. So my my specialty is obviously photography and all that, but having a good IT company that understands you're dealing with highly sensitive, sensitive private medical data is very important. So making sure that if you do hire an IT company that they have experience in the medical realm and they're not just someone off the high street who, um, <laughs> you know, who gave you a good price. Mm-hmm. So, Woodrow, I think there'll be people driving their car listening to this podcast kind of having a bit of a heart attack. They'll be saying, okay, I know nothing about photography and I've got to go and buy a professional camera. Um, I've got to put all these settings into the camera. I've got to get um, some sort of cloud server that's encrypted and new software Mm. for my um, potentially old laptop. So I might have to buy a new laptop. So tell us very briefly about your your setup with um, clinical imaging, your company, and how that translates to a clinic that doesn't really get a lot of this stuff. Without trying to sound like a salesman, my role is sort of turnkey where I've got different packages for different size clinics. Um, whether you've got you know a full clinic with 10 clinicians and two dedicated photography rooms or whether you're just starting out. And I, on my website, clinicalimaging.com.au, there's different packages there, which is a starting point to start a conversation. Ultimately, I'm going to recommend the right equipment environment and train your staff in how to use that equipment in that environment. Um, it is, a, you know, you have to appreciate that there's quite a bit of work behind the scenes, software, hardware, installation, calibration, all that sort of stuff. So um, my role is to make that as easy as possible um, by giving you various price point options depending on what you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. So we have we have a scale, and I think it's very competitively priced and a very good return on investment compared to a lot of the paperweight technologies that I have um, decommissioned <laughs> that clinicians <laughs> seem to buy. I'm not going to mention any of them, but I think sometimes whenever there's a medical um, spin on a product, sometimes the quality goes down. I don't know. It sounds weird. But the price goes experience up. That, Jay. <laughs> Price goes up, quality goes down. <laughs> yeah. um, especially a lot of this virtual reality simulator stuff. It, the technology is just not there, and it seems to be very cumbersome. And sometimes doctors will spend a lot of money on a 3D solution that is just too difficult for people to use. Mm-hmm. So I guess the aim of all my packages is to make it foolproof. And once everything's calibrated, you are essentially putting in some data and using a professional camera that operates like a phone where it's just point and click. Yeah. So you don't have to know what all these variables and settings and servers and clouds and apertures mean. You just have to know that it works reliably. Yeah. I think it's great. And I think it's something that everyone needs to think about in terms of, you know, you put so much time and effort, you know, building your premises or your clinic, all of the years of training, getting your results right. It seems like photography is such an afterthought for so many people and, it would just mm-hmm. be so much easier for them to communicate to their patients or prospective patients about the skills that they've got if they just got this right. 
Yeah, I, I agree completely. And it, it sometimes it uh, it does such a disservice to all the years of training or expertise or mm. treatment plans or technology that I'm just the icing on on the cake. Where like mm. I come in last minute, give them the imaging tools to be able to show all this beautiful work. And whether it's aesthetics, whether it's reconstructive, whether it's you know, uh, and I think that's what I really enjoy about this community. This community is the stories of how people's lives are changed through uh, either aesthetic treatments or reconstructive treatments or the expertise of clinicians. And then they go through all these journeys, but then the photography just lets it all down. Yeah. It lets, lets the clinician down to be able to show that to other people, what they, yeah. are, what they are capable of doing. Yeah. So that's what sort of motivates me a lot. And mm. I'm always learning uh, I'm always learning new things that people are doing, and yep. it's it's such an exciting space that's moving very quickly. So, yeah, it's very really, um, nice being part of it. So, Woodrow, um, for people who might want to reach out and you know explore some of those ideas in a bit more detail or have a chat with you, can you just remind us of your website and your social media? Thanks, Jake. the uh, The website is clinicalimaging.com.au. And I've got two Instagram channels, uh, clinical imaging underscore systems and clinical imaging underscore media, because um, I still do a lot of, uh, me and my teams do a lot of um, like media and advertising work within this space, whether it's like training videos or brand videos. Um, so yeah, there's two different channels there. And yeah, if they just, direct message me or if they make an appointment on the website, then we can just have a, a free consultation and go through, you know, if it's a good fit. And, uh, yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Well, please keep sharing the before and afters privately with me and we can have a good old laugh because um, <laughs> it always makes me giggle. <laughs> but hopefully we've inspired some cry. people listening. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, a bit of both, to be honest. But, yeah, but look... Uh, you know, joking aside, hopefully we've inspired some people to kind of think about, you know, what they're doing a little bit better. Um, even, you know, if, if you can't upgrade everything at the same time, just think about your angles, head position, you know, uh, even if you can't afford a flash, just make sure the light in your room is consistent and close the curtains so it's always the same light and, and no sunlight or just any variable that you can control <laughs> just please try and control mm -hmm. it because i think you, you, you'll sort of show your results so much better on your instagram and your websites etc well thanks woodrow thanks for your time thanks for joining us i know you you stayed up late and you've got a you've got a little uh, a, uh, a baby there as well so i know that um your time's precious and you're probably suffering with a lot of sleep deprivation so thank you for your time and, and stay in touch Cool. Thanks very much, guys. It was a pleasure. And um, I'll send you that information that you can do a post with, um, with all some those settings and camera models that I spoke about before. So, yeah, Thanks, you guys, I think you guys are doing a great, great uh, role in the community. Uh, I think, um, yeah, I, I, mean, I wish you all the best with it. And I think it's only going to go from stride to stride. So, well done. Thanks. Thanks, Woodrow. Thanks, mate. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.